KMTT, Kimitzion Teitzei Torah. You're listening to the Erev Shabbat program, Erev Shabbat Kodesh, Zayn Menachem Av, Parshat Devarim. The Erev Shabbat program is Leilui Nishmat Shlomo Yosef and Chaim Shmuel, and I'm your host, Jonathan Snowbell. <coughs> so that's it. My back is up against the wall. A little bit under three weeks ago, we entered Bein HaMitzarim, the three weeks between Shivas Arbe Tammuz and Antisha B'Av, and we stopped shaving for those of us among, um, of Ashkenazi descent, and we stopped going to weddings, maybe some of our people from Sephardi descent as well. And then we entered Rosh Chodesh Av, Arab Shabbat last week, and we stopped eating meat, and we stopped doing laundry once again. Those of us of Ashkenazi, then we stopped washing ourselves in hot water, and etc., etc., etc. And throughout all of this time, I continued talking about the Parsha and how I thought the Parsha related to the times. And I didn't take the opportunity to talk about the three weeks and to talk about the nine days and talk about Tishabav and talk about Khurban. And the question is why? The person who has to speak about something that's related to the Parsha every week should seize the opportunity when something else comes up to talk about something else, and I didn't. And the truth is, is that I avoided it like the plague. And it's one of the hardest times of the year for me. I don't like the three weeks. I don't like the nine days from Rosh Chodesh Av. And I certainly don't like Tisha B'Av. And I'm constantly looking at the calendar and looking at my watch to see when it will be Monday afternoon, Yud Av after Chatzot, and this will be over. Now, what does this all mean? Of course you don't like it. Why should you like it? It's an inconvenience. Shaving, showering, laundry, meat, this, that. That's true. And of course you don't like it because it's churban. It's a sad time of year. So nobody wants to be in a sad time of year. We all would rather be in sukkah and singing and dancing and and sitting in a sukkah and benching lulav. But that's not why I don't like it. I don't like saying keynote. Well, of course you don't like saying It's long. It's hard to understand. It's sad, the keynote. It's depressing. That's not why I don't like it. The three weeks, the nine days in Tisha B'Av are difficult for me because they force me to admit that I don't know the answers. I look and see the Khurban. And the Khurban, the destruction, in all of its meanings, starting from the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, going on to the scattering of the Jews into the Galut, into exile, and all the ramifications of that, of crusades and pogroms, and of course, climaxing with the Holocaust in Europe. And it's about facing personal khurbans of individuals whose lives have been turned upside down by circumstances, whether divorce, whether handicap, whether losing a son in battle, in a pigua, in a terrorist attack, a car accident, a drowning. It's a great, difficult task where we just face destruction with our hands turned up towards the heavens and not understanding. And we can say why. We could challenge God and we can be angry with God if we choose to channel these questions in that direction. And I will admit that at times I've challenged it, challenged it in, that, in those directions. But the bottom line, if I analyze myself correctly, if I believe that I'm analyzing myself correctly, it's facing this great void of lack of knowledge, of not understanding why. And deep down, I believe that El Amunah God is straight, God is just, God has reasons for everything. 
But that makes everything else all the more difficult to digest. Because when I admit my lack of knowledge, when I admit that I don't understand, even if I accept God's wisdom and God's judgment as being correct and being the right thing, it leaves me as an individual, as a human being, all the more vulnerable. Because if I'm from a branch of Judaism which understands everything, then everything is understood. Oh, this one, this one's tragedy. Look at the mezuzah on the third floor of the house. And this one's suffering. Look there, look that. There's explanations for everything. And I know the explanations. Then everything is fine. Because there's explanations for everything. No one's vulnerable. Everybody just has to be very, very careful. Check the mezuzahs, check their mido, check their tamutara, check everything. And everything will be okay. But I'm not from that branch of Judaism. And we have questions. And we cannot escape at times in my branch of Judaism. And we means anybody out there who's in my branch of Judaism. Who at times look up to the Rebona Shalom and repeat our father's words to him of Hashofet Kolaar And whether it's personal suffering, and when it's more than personal suffering, it's national suffering. And it's hard for me not to mention the people of Gush Katif as well who three years ago, almost around this time on the Jewish calendar, and certainly around this time in the non-Jewish calendar, were being thrown out of their houses to a fate of no one's taking care of them, certainly not the people who threw them out of their houses. At this point would be a good point to mention uh, Rav Rimon, Rav Yosef Tfi Rimon from Yeshivat Haaretzion, from Alon Shvut, who has raised a, uh, a foundation really, really to take care of them in the most important way, and that's in helping them find jobs, job katif, tasu katif, a wonderful institution, but going back to where we were, facing that those questions and not having answers in our terms. We don't have answers in our terms. We can, we can speculate and we can wonder. And the bottom line is, after all of that, speculating and wondering, we don't have answers that satisfy our questions about how does we understand how this individual person, who is a good person, was thrown out of their house and taken away from their job and is now in poverty? And we don't have answers to why a child was put into the gas chambers. This specific child, not, oh, I'm Israel, or this or that. This specific child, we don't have answers. For. And that's what we face on Tisha B'Av, and that's why I don't like Tisha B'Av. As a human being, we like to face reality and be in charge of reality and know that reality is in our grasps, and we make the decisions that determine our fate. And Tishabav and destruction and suffering makes us sit down and say keynote and question God and describe our suffering and not have answers. And that is the state of the Jewish soul. We can say, El avil tzadik but we are going to have questions, and questions that we're not going to be able to answer. That is the tremendous pressure that we are put into on Tisha B'Av, the nine days on the three weeks. The phrase that describes Tisha B'Av is Eicha. How could this happen? It's a question. That is what Tisha B'Av is. It's a question mark. And from all of those questions that we don't have answers to, we say, El We are confident, supremely confident, that God has the answers to those questions. And part of our existence as human beings in the world is not being allowed 
all the answers to the questions. You are not entitled to be privy to all the information, and yet... All that being said, we don't have the answers to the questions. On the other hand, and we go on. And we don't just go on. Nonetheless, even if we can't know the answers to the questions, we do demand of ourselves to introspect. And we are demanded on Tisha B'Av, knowing that we have questions and we don't know the answers, to determine what I can do as an individual. And what I can do as an individual who has an impact on my community. And what I can do as an, indivi- as an individual who has an impact on my nation. What can I do to change reality and make it a better one? And make it so that we don't have to face Tisha B'Av next year as a day of mourning. Even though I don't know that my answer is the correct answer because I'm not privy to the answers. I look into my soul on Tisha B'Av, or I should look into my soul on Tisha B'Av, and all of us should as well, and say, how can I make my society better? How can I make my yearning for the building of the Beit HaMikdash more sincere? How can I be a better Jew? How can I be a better person? So that Tisha B'Av, as the Navi and Zechariah teaches us, can be a day of Sasson V'Simcha in the future. Thank you, Rabbi Yonatan Snowbell. This is Ezra Beck. And we're coming now to the end. This is the last broadcast of this summer's man, the summer, the summer semester. And KMTT is taking its annual summer vacation. I know there are people who have actually complained, and quite correctly from their point of view. If you're, if you're hooked, if you listen to KMTT every day, as I suggested, and that's what it exists for, and you're not on vacation now, so we've left you kind of without uh, what to do in your traveling. But there are ways to get around that. I mentioned them in the end. Uh, you can always go back to our older shoe and the other websites as well that provide ways for you to keep uh, learning Torah. But we actually need our vacations, and uh, the Yeshiva's on vacation now, and everybody, staff is on vacation. And so we are also taking, KMT is also taking its vacation. We'll come back on Rosh Chodesh Elul. Before that, I'd like to take these few minutes to uh, relate to the day in which we're standing and the upcoming days. The Yeshiva world and our Yeshiva included takes vacation during Chodesh Av from Tisha B'Av on, or right before Tisha B'Av. The Yeshiva is usually closed when it comes to Tisha B'Av. One of the results is that if you, if you look in rabbinic literature, if you look in a good library for books that are written on Mo'adim, which very often consist of Sichot, of talks that were given in Yeshivot by Rosh Yeshiva before the different Chagim, so you'll find that very often there's nothing on Tisha B'Av because Yeshiva was closed beforehand. But nonetheless, today is Erev Shabbat Hazan and Sunday is Tisha B'Av. Let's take a few minutes to mention one small uh, comment concerning the day of sadness, the day of Avilut, the day of mourning, of national mourning, Yom Tisha B'Av, Yom Churban Beit Mikdashenu, Shibanevi Koneinu Hev Yemenu Amen. In the Hilchot Tisha B'Av that appear in the Sidur of Rabbi Yaakov Emdin, Sidur Beit El, he adds the following comment. He says, it appears to me 
אלמלא לא היה אלא עוון זה בידינו, שאין מתאבלים על ירושלים כראוי, די להעריך גלותנו. He said, were it not, were the only, were the only sin that we would have, that we would be charged with, that we do not properly mourn for Yerushalayim, that alone would be sufficient to explain the length of our exile. That alone would be sufficient to lengthen our exile. The Gemara, uh, the Gemara says, it's a Yerushalmi, it's mentioned in a somewhat different language in the Bavli, that the length of the exile is dependent directly on the status and the sins of the present generation. On the famous statement of Chazal, he who, in his lifetime, the Beit HaMikdash was not built, it is though it was destroyed, so the commentators explain that that means because it was destroyed in your lifetime because you are responsible. You, the, the, the punishment has been inflicted on you that it was not built. In other words, that it was destroyed. And the length of the Galut, 2,000 years, nearly 2,000 years since the destruction of the second Beit HaMikdash, the length of the Galut has, has always appeared to Rabbanim, to Chachamim, in each generation, and of course the question gets longer and longer and harder and harder as the time goes by, to be, to be something which requires extraordinary ex- explanation. After all, Bayit Rishon, the first Beit HaMikdash, was destroyed, and they were promised at the time immediately, 70 years, and they returned after 70 years. 70 years! Theoretically, people could have been alive, and the Sukim, and as we say, there were people at the Chaduchat of the Beit HaMikdash HaShini, who remembered the Beit HaMikdash HaVishon, the Zikinim. We call that two generations, 70 years. The Beit HaMikdash HaShini, the destruction of the Second Temple, has now continued, and the Galut, and the wanderings of the Jews, have continued for nearly 2,000 years. So we always, we tend to compare Bayit Rishon to Bayit Shaini. Why? Where? The difference in the, in, the, in the outcome is so extraordinary. So it's true, the Ramban, in Sefer HaGeulah, a book that the Ramban wrote about the, the future redemption, the Gula of Amisal, the Ramban there says that it's incorrect to assume that the destruction of the first Beit HaMikdash resulted in a 70, or the, Beit, the sins of the first Beit HaMikdash, the sins of the Jews in the first commonwealth, in the first kingdom, the first Beit HaMikdash, resulted in a 70-year Galut, and that was it, and everything was then okay, and the sins of the second commonwealth, sins of the Jews in the second Bayit, resulted so far, in his time, a, a, a 1,200-year exile, and our time, a 2,000-year exile. He said, it's not correct. We are now in the exile from the first Beit HaMikdash. However, what happened was that God saw that if the 70-year punishment would continue as was deserved, but the Jews were on such a low level, and specifically their connection to Torah was on such a low level, that the Torah would simply have been forgotten. They would have disappeared as all peoples in ancient times disappeared after being uprooted and dispersed. And therefore God brought them back to have a period of Bayit Shani in which they would 
litchazek by Torah. They would they would strengthen their connection to Torah, as we know the Torah develops learning Torah and observing Torah in Beit Sheni. And then God said, "Okay, now you're going back to finish off the sentence from the first Beit Hamikdash." In other words, Beit Sheni was like a furlough; it was like a vacation; it was a time off from the original sentence. It's true; that's what the Ramban says. But nonetheless, the Jewish imagination has always gone back to the question of galut, the length, the extraordinary length of the galut. And I think underneath it, there's the feeling, maybe not verbalized, maybe not admitted, but deep down in our hearts we have the feeling that maybe galut is a normal situation. Maybe exile and dispersion is in fact the natural state of the Jews. Now, I have been philosophers, I think not religious philosophers, I've been philosophers who have become enamored of the special state of the Jews as being the universal and dispersed people, and they've turned it into an ideal. But even that's not my philosophy, just you begin to wonder, oh, okay, we talk about Eretz Yisrael, we hope for some future, extraordinarily distant future perhaps, called Mashiach Tzitkenu. But the state of the Jews in Galut is not an anomaly. And how could it be after so many years? But of course, Chachamenu of all generations, Chazal, ancient, and modern, do not accept that. And we know, as the Maval explains at great length, and others, that you no, know, the Jewish people only exist in Eretz Yisrael. And, and, and Torah only exists, properly speaking, when it's Beit HaMikdash. How many mitzvot are missing? Where's the Shekhinah? You imagine that, that Galut HaShekhinah, that God's no visible presence of God in the world is normal? That's the way the world is supposed to be? And then the question is, but look... How could something be abnormal? How could we, how could we daily pine for a situation that no one has seen for nineteen hundred and sixty years, forty nineteen hundred and forty years? So if Yaakov Emden says havachata galut, he says it gives a very simple answer. It is sufficient. The lack of yearning for Mikdash is sufficient to explain the lack of Mikdash. V'hi be'inai, he adds, ha'siba ha'kruva ha'yoter gluya atzuma v'chazaka. This, to my opinion, my opinion, is the most immediate. There probably are deeper reasons, but this is the most immediate, clear, strongest reason for all the persecutions, the amazing, inconceivable persecutions which we have encountered in the period of our galut. And he continues then, and then he says, Why? Because Yatsa ha'evel hazemilibenu, for this morning has completely gone out of our hearts. For we live at peace in a land not ours, and we forget Yerushalayim. And it does not arise on our hearts. And one can see this especially on Yom Tisha B'Av, sad day. Who? Who indeed? mourns, who groans for the destruction of the temple and for the wasteland that is our country, as would be proper, from the depths of his heart. How many tears are spilled for this? And I need not mention the rest of the year. No one remembers. No one pays attention. No one speaks of it. And even in thought, it does not arise. That's a quote from Ari Yavitz of Yaakov Emdin, Sidur Beit El. 
And what he's saying, it's a very, it's saying that, of course, you know, there are sins, and you can ask which sin is responsible in each generation. He says it would be sufficient if we would simply mourn. What's he saying? Is the lack of mourning for the Beit HaMikdash such a terrible sin? Technically speaking, it's only a chet midr The whole Tisha B'Av is only midr It doesn't mean that you've, been, you've done a chet, you've done a sin by not properly observing Tisha B'Av, which probably you have properly observed Tisha B'Av. He's saying, if the state of Galut doesn't strike you as being terrible, unbearably terrible, then why should God change it? The Geula is found in the yearning for Yerushalayim. If we would want it, we would have it. And if we don't want it, then we are not deserving of it. In another context, just to explain how this could possibly be. So, it's also coming from Yaakov Benden himself. The Gemara in Gitin, the with Bet, has a story among the stories there about, the, about the Chuban. So, there's a story there that's called uh, the story of Shilita the Nagra, the uh, carpenter's apprentice. I'll tell the story very quickly. It comes to explain a Pasuk. It says there was once a case where a man became enamored of the wife of his master. He was the carpenter's apprentice, and he fell in love with the carpenter's wife. And one time, the carpenter needed to borrow money. He said, oh, you know, I can lend you money. Send your wife over to get the money for me. And so his wife came to get the money. And the Gemara, in a very, very modest, very, very careful manner, says she stayed there three days. And then the man came to look for his wife. And so he came. He knew that the last person who he knew had seen his wife was the carpenter's apprentice. He came to the apprentice and said, have you seen my wife? He said, oh yeah, she was here three days ago, but she left. And then I heard that afterwards she ran off with some children. He told some stories. So the man said, oh, what should I do? He said, I think you should divorce her. He said, yeah, but I, 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 he believed, he believed his apprentice that the wife had run off. So he said, but how am I going to divorce her? She has a very, very big tuba. It's very expensive to divorce her. She gets a lot of money if she's divorced. He said, I'll lend you the money. And so he lent his master the money. And he wrote the get, and he arranged for her to get the get. Afterwards, the apprentice married her. Man had difficulty paying back the loans. So he said, okay, you owe me money. You can come work for me. And he became the servant of the man who had been his apprentice. And the Medrash finishes, the couple. And Oh, he married the girl, of course. The apprentice married the woman. And they would sit and eat and drink. And he, the former master, was standing and serving them by pouring their drinks and his tears fell into their cups. And then the Gemara adds, And on that, at that moment, the decree of the Jewish people, of the Beit HaMikdash, was written. So, there's more than one story like that. I'm not questioning the historicity. Could it really be? But the, the idea. So the, the Mephashim explained. Everybody knew about it. No one protested. He wrote a get. The rabbis helped him write a get. He lived well afterwards. Nobody protested this act. And therefore, they were all worthy of destruction. So the Rabbi, Rabbi Yaakov Enden says, yeah, but what's the chet here? I mean, that's true, he lied. He told a lie. He said that she had run off. She hadn't run off. What, 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 what exactly is the, is the, technically speaking, the Avera? He says, you don't need a technical Avera. 
Mikan nirebaru. From this story we see that there are sins which are not written or explained anywhere. And they are very, very, very severe and hateful in the eyes of God more than the explicit Averot of the Shulchan Aruch and the Gemara. So that the punishment is greater not just for the person who did it but for the entire community because nobody paid attention to it even though it was what? Even though im heyotom mitnaged lasechel because even though you don't need a pasuk common sense told you that it was terrible and then he gives the famous comment of Hillel this should have been included in the sani lach lechavach lotavid that which is hateful to you do not do to your friend in other words, there are avival, there are sins, and there are punishments written in the Torah. And we often do tshuva and try to be as great as tzaddikim as we can and not have any avival. And those are we did, we should do tshuva. And all of Israel should do tshuva. And God will have mercy on us and, and, and bring the gula. But, but he says, sometimes the sin isn't written. It's not that kind of a sin. It's common sense. It's basic morality. It's basic justice. I think that's what he meant in the earlier comment that I said. If you don't care about Yushalayim, why should God give it to you? It's not a punishment for the chet of not caring. It's, it's justice. It's what's right. And sometimes, therefore, those things are more severe, they're greater, but also the tikkun, the, 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 the fixing, the, the answer, it's sometimes very, very simple as well. Perhaps if we would just care more, if we would understand how much we're missing, if we would care more not just about ourselves, because we're not suffering that much, we're doing well nowadays in Galut. Most Galuyot. In the free world at least. But that doesn't mean that Shekhinah is not the It doesn't mean that the state of Amisal is 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 missing its basic definition of being kisei malchuto shel Hashem. We're here in order that God's kingdom should be on us. If we don't miss the Beit Hamikdash, if we don't miss the Geula, that alone says of Yaakov Emden is a reason for us not to have it. Even in the next few hours, perhaps we will be spared coming to Shabbat. But if not, let us remember that it's biyadeinu. That which is holding up the gula is ourselves. First, we have to understand what we're missing. First, we have to really cry and feel the loss. How far we are from Shekhinah, how far Shekhinah is from us. All that is missing, the Torah speaks about the glory of this world, how much of that is missing, how many mitzvot are missing, how much kedusha is missing. And if we see beyond our immediate, comfortable circumstances, and realize how terrible the situation truly is from the, from the eyes of someone who is spiritually sensitive and aware, then the tears and the sadness and the yearning for God's closeness should be kaparat nafsheinu, should be our atonement. Vinanir b'meira b'yameinu, b'shuv Hashem tziyon.
וביאת משיח צדקנו גורלנו, בנהר ובימינו אמן. a pleasant time for my vacation. I should have a pleasant vacation, you should have a pleasant vacation, and a pleasant summer. We'll be back, Rosh Chodesh, Elul, more or less, the beginning of Elul, in three weeks, for another season of KMTT. If you have not fallen behind, and you want material to read, we have an archive full of Shur from KMTT going back three years. The address is www. Kimitzion.org, K-I-M-I-T-Z-I-O-N.org. And there's a link there to the archives. The purpose of KMTT is to learn Torah every day. For that, there is no vacation. If we're not providing it, you sure you do not want to be on vacation from learning Torah every day. Even if you're taking a vacation, you should take Torah with you. On the contrary, if you're taking a vacation, you should take tons of hours of KMTT and other shirim with you. So it's not to be divorced from Torah. And until we are together, until you get to hear my voice, Skoltov, Shinareben Nechama, Shabbat, Shalom, Vecholtov. Perhaps, perhaps, that is the reason why I hate Tishabov. And perhaps that same reason that I hate Tishabov so much is the reason that we have Tishabov. If we hate the reality which is full of suffering, and questions, unanswered questions, perhaps we'll be forced to change that reality, to look into ourselves, to make a change, to make it different, to be a better person, to speak more nicely to people, to when you're put into those situations where, you're not, where, where, where your nature would pull you to speak not nicely, you'll force yourself to speak nicely civilly and realize that you can solve the problems with, your, with other people in nicer ways. Perhaps we're not meant to like Tisha B'Av so that we'll do our darndest to make sure that there isn't going to be another Tisha B'Av. Mi who knows, halavai, that we won't fast even Tisha B'Av on Sunday. In the event that we do, we should be privileged to introspect, to make changes, not just to think about changes, to be better people, to be better Jews. Halavai, that we should take our keynote and put them away in the bottom of the cupboard at shul, hoping that we won't ever take them out again, except for perhaps as academians who will look at the keynote that the Jews used to say when they didn't have a Beit HaMikdash, not to say them in shul anymore. Halavai, we should learn to know to make those differences, to make those changes that will allow that reality. And if we do, then perhaps it was worth going through the three weeks, the nine days, and going through Tisha B'Av. Shabbat Shalom.